As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read these verses from Psalm 77. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your works and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people. Father, we agree with these words that Asaph wrote so many years ago under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. We too acknowledge that you are the great God of the universe, that you are the one who has performed wonders. You're the one who looks down upon our poor frame and you love us and, and you work to draw us to a place of true salvation, of truly walking with you and of bringing glory to your name. We're thank, we thank you for your faithfulness and your love and your power. Even in the midst of stress and strife, we know you have never changed and you are always there. And so, Father, I pray you will strengthen our faith. Grant to us the gift to believe that you will do what you have promised to do in each and every situation. Lord, I, I pray that you will guide us in our understanding of your word this morning. Fill us with the sense of the presence of your Holy Spirit. Touch each life according to your perfect will this day. And Father, as the service uh, takes place this morning, that you will bless the proclamation of your word in both this hour and the, and the third hour service. And throughout our Sunday school this morning, we trust for your presence in every class. And we ask, Lord, that if there are on this property this morning men, women, children who do not know Jesus Christ, that you will speak to their hearts, that you will break down the barriers, that you will draw them into your kingdom this day. And all over the world, as your word is proclaimed, we ask that the kingdom of God will grow and prosper and that the forces of darkness will be driven back. And we'll thank you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the 17th chapter of 2 Samuel. And I'd like to read the uh, first 14 verses. We started last Sunday uh, looking at the first four verses, but let me uh, read the first 14 this morning. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and will terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone. And I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people shall be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also. Let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, This time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men. They are fierce like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with his people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. And it will be when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears it will say, 
there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. But I counsel that all Israel shall be get, surely gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea in abundance. Today, uh, in this lesson, Absalom's coup has seen a measure of prosperity. At least Absalom sees it that way. Because David, his father, has been chased away along with his mighty men and many of his followers, and Jerusalem was an open city. Down through history, when it was the desire of the, the people in power to not see their city destroyed, they would declare it an open city. This has happened all through the centuries in numerous wars. It even happened in World War II on occasion. An open city. So the city would not be pulverized and, and beat and, and blood flow in the streets. And in effect, that's what's happened here. David cared for the people of Jerusalem to the extent that he didn't want to see them butchered in a siege. And so he simply left and went down to the valley, down into the valley of the Jordan River. And, and there he was simply going to trust the Lord. He, he's a man of faith. A man who has walked with God, lo, these many years. And God had promised him the kingdom. So he was going to see what God would do. But Absalom, of course, this young rebel. Now, he's not exactly a kid here, but uh, he, he's an adult. He has decided that, whoa, you know, this has happened so quickly. I need some advice here. He's smart enough to know he needed advice anyway. And, and so he went to Ahithophel and said, this has been our success so far. How, how do we capitalize on this? I'm still insecure because my father's out there and I know he's a dangerous man. And so what should we do to secure what we have accomplished so far? And Ahithophel gives the advice, give me 12,000 men right now, this very night, and I'll lead them down there and I'll surround your father, chase off all of his uh, defenders and kill him. And then I'll bring them all back up to Jerusalem and they will all give obeisance to you and the, rebel, the rebellion will be over and the kingdom will be yours. This was the plan of Ahithophel. And the scripture tells us that both Absalom and his, the men around him thought that was great advice. But there was just enough question in Absalom's mind that he wanted to have a second opinion. And we've talked about second opinions before. And so he decided to call in Hushai the archite, who had also come over to, uh, to Absalom and to find out what Ahithophel, uh, what Absalom's, what Hushai's advice would be. This time, Hushai says, the advice of Ahithophel is not good. I don't think that's set very well, Absalom. What? You're telling me this advice is not good. I want you two to agree here. I need to know what's the right thing to do. And, and you're telling me his advice is wrong. But in a way, I think Hushai's warning resonated a little bit with Absalom because in the back of Absalom's mind was a question. Otherwise, he wouldn't even have asked Hushai to give his advice. There was this question that, after all, we've been successful so far. And I think also the obvious logic of what Hushai had to say began to sink in to Absalom's mind because Notice in the passage how Hushai spells it out so clearly. He says, and what he's doing is he's reaffirming what Absalom already knew about his father. 
First, he, saw, he said, your father is an expert in warfare. Absalom could, you know, could relate to that because his father had founded this vast kingdom. His father had been victorious in battle. His, his father had killed Goliath. Uh, so he knew his father was, was great in warfare. And he, and he says, besides that, your father is valiant and he's wise. Absalom can't deny that. He, he knew very much that his father was afraid of nothing. Thirdly, your father is a mighty man. Well, yes, he is. Uh, I wouldn't have wanted to stand up against Goliath. And he's surrounded by mighty men, maybe a thousand of them, as we have estimated uh, from the passage. And, and he goes on to give this, this little parallel. He says, and these guys will fight for David like a bear, she-bear, robbed of her cubs. And uh, they knew that a she-bear robbed of her cubs was a very dangerous animal. And so Absalom could relate to that. And then finally, he kind of nails it together tightly in Absalom's mind. And he says, David, your father would not be so foolish as to be just loosely camped out in the open where you're going to come down and fall upon him and overwhelm him and kill him in, in the open field. No, your dad is smart. He's in a cave someplace or he's laid an ambush just in case something like this would happen. When the forces that Ahithophel uh, are, are postulating would, would come down and and they would attack David that he would fall upon them and he would destroy the attacking army and then the word would come back up that they'd been destroyed and all of your support would melt away. Absalom was very well convinced because he knew what Hushai was saying was true. He knew his father that well. And what we have to remember is also the God factor here. God is at work and God is confirming in Absalom's mind the truth of what Hushai saying. So Hushai doesn't just knock down Ahithophel's plan without offering one of his own. And this is one of the big issues we see today frequently. It's easy to criticize somebody else's plan, somebody else's program. We hear this in, the pol in politics all the time. Without offering an option, without offering a better plan. So Hushai says, I've got a better plan. Go to sleep. Get a good night's sleep. Tomorrow we'll begin to recruit men from all over Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And, and we'll recruit a huge army. An army with, you know, he talks about the army falling upon David like the dew falls on the grass at night. You know, just a blanketing army that would be so overwhelming that there wouldn't be any way that David and his men could resist or survive. And, and then everybody will have confidence inspired in, in this overwhelming force because you will personally go with it. You will lead it. Oh, okay. And the soldiers will fight for you because if you are personally there leading the army, your soldiers will fight for you because they know that you are their, their, their banner. You're the one that they are committed to. They will fight like tigers to guarantee your security and to guarantee your throne. Hushai is presenting a very, very brilliant plan. It's, it's a bit dangerous that he's presenting such a good plan because if it were actually carried out, it probably would be successful. Uh, well, it will be carried out, but I mean, in the fleshly ways, it could have been successful. But obviously, God was in this. Now, what is interesting is that the truth of what Hushai is saying in terms of Absalom personally leading the army. Don't sit here in, in your palace, on your throne, while your army is out there fighting. Lead them. Go with them. Let them personally see you so they know for whom they are sacrificing 
their lives. This, this is dramatically illustrated more than one time in history, but probably the most brilliant example of this is the life of Alexander the Great. You know about him, certainly. In the fourth century before Christ, Alexander came to the throne of Macedonia, and Macedonia had just conquered Greece because his father was murdered. And so he was, he was only like 20 years old when he came to the throne, but he had this plan to conquer Persia, because this was his father's plan, but his father was never able to carry it out because he was murdered before he could. So Alexander decides he's going to carry out this plan. Now, for us today, we say, well, for Greece is going to attack Persia, well, you know, big deal. The difference between Greece and Persia in terms of population and territory were enormous. The Persian Empire was the biggest empire the world had ever known up to that time. It reached from the Aegean Sea to India. The population was at least 60 million. It was a huge empire. And it had mighty forces. It had conquered all this territory. And, and Alexander the Great is going to go over and conquer it? It's kind of the mouse that roared kind of phenomenon, you know. Uh, it'd be like Luxembourg declaring war on Germany and conquering Germany, you know. Now, if you know anything about Luxembourg, it's a very, very tiny country. He took an army of 35 to 40,000 men and he went into the Persian Empire, and he was successful sometimes against armies between three and five times the size of his army. It is said by the historians that were there that in the Battle of Arbela, which was fought not too far from Baghdad, that uh, where Baghdad would be, there was no Baghdad in those days, that Alexander's army was outnumbered five to one by the Persian forces. That was what the record is. And, and yet he was successful because he personally led his troops. I, I don't mean by that he stood on the battlefield and said, okay, you guys, see that uh, goal over there? I want you to go take it. No, he was on the front of the fighting force. He led the cavalry in the charge, and he was on the point of the flying wedge. I mean, he was the first guy on the front of the attacking force. And what this did was it drove his men to superhuman effort because they wanted to protect their leader. Their, they almost viewed him as a god. In fact, he thought he was Achilles. They're going to protect him no matter what. Alexander brilliantly used his men. He would be the first guy up a ladder on a wall, knowing his other men are going to, ah, you know, almost claw their way up the wall to protect him. And you just create this, 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 desire to sacrifice yourself, if you have to, to protect the one for whom you're fighting in the first place. It was brilliant psychology. It worked very well. He conquered the whole Persian Empire. He said that on his deathbed, when the doctors prepared him for burial, there was hardly an inch on his body that didn't have a wound in it from spear or sword or something uh, in the battles that he had fought. But he survived. And with that little bitty army, he conquered this vast empire. It's truly amazing. So that's the kind of psychology that Hushai is spelling out here to uh, Absalom. You get out there and, and you lead them and they'll fight to the death for you. Hushai urged Absalom to accept this advice, to follow it up. And he said, this will guarantee that there'll be no escape for your father and the kingdom will be yours. Verse 14, though, of this passage tells us as you read in the latter part of the verse, it says, For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel in order that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. 
This is the providential power of God at work behind the scenes, working through Hushai, working through Ahithophel, working in Absalom, even though Absalom had nothing to do with God. Scripture tells us that not only was Absalom convinced this was good advice, so were his counselors, his followers, his other leaders. Oh, great, this is a better idea. Let's go with the idea of Hushai. When you think about it, it makes sense. Overwhelming force seems better than just a quick strike force, which, which might meet disaster. You know? Because we're not chasing some wimp over here. We're after a wounded lion, and he's very dangerous. This whole thing, this, this acceptance of the advice of Hushai and this rejection of the advice of Ahithophel is a direct answer to David's prayer. When he first heard that Ahithophel had turned traitor and gone over to the side of Absalom, you remember as we read it in the 15th chapter, these words, this was the prayer of David. O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. This is God's way of answering that prayer. This is an example of a prayer directly and quickly answered by God because it was in accordance with His will. Most of us are familiar with that passage in 1 John. Let me just remind your pure minds of 1 John chapter 5, this uh, passage that has to do with prayer. In verse 13, 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of him. It's one of the blessings of study of the Word in intense detail as much as we can because that helps us to know what is the will of God. What is it God wants? What is it is, which is God's desire so that we can pray in accordance to it? Because as we pray in accordance to it, we know that we have the requests that we make of God. Now, we know that not every prayer that is prayed, even in accordance with the will of God, is answered as quickly as this prayer was answered for David, or maybe even so obviously definitively as this prayer was answered for David. But I think we can be assured that the prayer will be answered according to God's timetable. <laughs> and isn't that sometimes the frustrating thing? I've more than once said to God, please hurry up. You know, <laughs> your timetable is too slow. <laughs> Our life is too short. Uh, but he knows best. And I guess that's where the role of patience and faith comes in. And uh, faith, of course, we need all the time because the scripture tells us that without faith, we can't even please God. But, but we, we really need a lot of faith. Uh, my wife and I have been praying a lot for that just recently because of issues, uh, one of the which I'll mention in the prayer time this morning. It seems that our prayer, 
Our faith is most tested when we pray a prayer that we know is in accordance with the will of God and nothing happens. <laughs> nothing happens or it doesn't seem like anything is happening. And that's where we get the most frustrated, I think, sometimes. And we're almost willing to, to tell God that, um, give him a piece of our mind, but as you well know, <laughs> we can't afford to lose any pieces. <laughs> He knows our thoughts before we make, we even have them anyway, so we aren't telling him anything. It's all, I guess it just blows off our own steam. But uh, I think this is a dramatic example of what God does in answer to prayer, and, and hopefully it will be inspiration to us to hang in there in faith, because I know every single one of you has prayers that you're praying that you desperately want to see God answer, if it be for uh, a mate, uh, a child, a grandchild, a friend, an uncle, an aunt, a mother, a father, whomever it is, and, and it's a desperate prayer that we're praying for their transformation, salvation maybe, whatever it is, that uh, we may have been agonizing over this prayer for years even, and yet nothing seems to have happened up to this moment. But God is at work and we just have to believe him. And, and that's where David's great strength comes in. That's, we see this rooted in, uh, we see this uh, played out in so many of his psalms. I mean, sometimes David does write a psalm in which he says, oh Lord, where are you? You know, in which he also says, Lord, smack him down, you know, stick it to him. Yet behind this, all of these psalms is this latent faith that God is sovereign. He is, pr his providence rules. And, and sometimes it's hard for us because everything that we see in our daily life seems to be going the other way. Seems like the devil is having his way and, and people are running off to hell by the millions and it seems like the kingdom of God is, is almost forgotten and yet we have to know that that's not the way it really is. Well, let's read on here in uh, the 15th verse of 2 Samuel 17. Then Hushai said to Zadok and to Abiathar the priests, This is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom and the elders of Israel, and this is what I have counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend the night at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be destroyed. <laughs> right there you get to see that what Ahithophel counseled, I mean what Hushai counseled, <laughs> Absalom was, was mostly hype. <laughs> well, you know, he was hoping that was so, but his real understanding was that David probably is all, you know, kind of over there just all bunched up and he needs a little advice to get, get a move on here. Now Jonathan and Himeaz were staying at Enrogel and a maidservant would go and tell them and they would go and tell King David for they could not be seen entering the city. But a lad did see them and told Absalom, so the two of them departed quickly and came to the house of a man in Barim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took a covering and spread it over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it so that nothing was known. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and said, Where are Himeas and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have crossed the brook of water. And when they searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. 
Hushai was not convinced, of course, that Absalom was going to take his advice. He didn't know. Absalom might just take Ahithophel's advice and go ahead and, and make the quick strike that uh, very night. So just in case, Hushai put the, uh, activated the spy ring that David had put into place. And, and somehow he got a message to the high priest uh, at that time because he felt that David was in imminent danger. David needed to know what was going on. That was the purpose of Hushai being in the council of, in, in the presence of Absalom. And it was not only to give Absalom the counsel that would help David out, but it was also to, to give inner circle information to David so he knew what was being planned at the very heart of Absalom's followers. And so Hushai sent down through the spy system this message. David, don't camp on this side of the Jordan River. Get your hind end on the other side of the river with all of your followers tonight. He wanted David to understand the seriousness of this threat. This was not just a minor thing. This could be the end of it all, David, if you don't move now. Obviously, Absalom had suspicions. I don't think Absalom knew exactly the spy ring that had been set up, but he had some suspicions, particularly about the priests and the sons of the priests. And so they were being watched. And the scripture tells us that Jonathan and Ahimeaz, the sons of Zadok and Abiathar, were not free to enter and to leave Jerusalem. Uh, they knew if they did so that either they'd be arrested or they would be watched all the time. And so they decided that they would stay outside the city at the little village of Enrogel. Enrogel means Fuller's Spring, a place where clothes would be washed and the filler would be put in to give the cloth its body. This was a small village, only about a quarter of a mile away from the walls of Jerusalem. It was very, very close. Uh, right down on the edge of the valley of the Cadrone River. So, I mean, you could have seen in Rogel from the walls of, um, of Jerusalem. And so what they did was they sent an inconspicuous maidservant. Who would ever suspect this, this, this nobody? Just going out to the spring to, to do whatever, gather water, wash, whatever. And, and she would somehow pass a message on to Jonathan and Ahimeaz uh, from the spy network. But somebody saw this transaction happen. Or at least they saw Jonathan and Ahimeaz. And they knew, they, they recognized him, and, and they knew that these guys are getting up to go somewhere. They're getting up to go somewhere. They're leaving. They must have a message. Somehow they got a message, whether he saw the interchange with the girl, uh, whether she directly uh, confronted them or, you know, did a drop somewhere, you know. <laughs> Or, or, or put it in, you know, the, the put it in here, a message in a little part of the glasses here, and, and left the glasses, and they don't oh, pull a message. No. But, but however, the, the message was transferred to these men. And so this young man saw them leave. They realized they had been seen. God, I think, helped them to see that this person is a spy. Uh, he's watching you, and, and so... They took off in a big hurry, and, and the young man went back and told Absalom what he had seen. Well, what is interesting is that Jonathan Ahimeaz ran to the little town of Bahurim, which was located two, three miles north of the Mount of Olives. So all this is happening very close to Jerusalem. We're not very far away here with any of this here. 
And there they, they ran to apparently a, a safe house, a loyal couple, and they said, you got to hide us because the agents of Absalom are, are hard on our trail. Uh, we we got to escape them so we can carry a message on to David. And so the couple said, get in the well. No, no, get in the well. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, you know, the well could have been relatively dry during that time of the year. Uh, could have been that there was a place inside the well to be. I mean, the wells in, in those days weren't all just holes dug straight down the ground. Many of them were cisterns. And meantime, cisterns in a dry season would be nearly dry, in fact dry, and so being inside was no big deal. Uh, but obviously, they had to be protected. So the woman, ah, spread some covering over the mouth of the well. It must have been a well that was very flush to the ground or close to it. Spread uh, cloth, we don't know what, all over it, and, and grain, put grain out there to dry. So it just looked like a grain drying area. And so when the agents of Absalom came running up, they, they would be totally unsuspicious that there was a well or any place where these two men could be hidden. <coughs> Barim was certainly a small village, probably not more than a few dozen people. So it wouldn't take the agents of Absalom very long to question everybody in the village. When it came to this couple, they simply flat out said, well, where are Jonathan and Himeas? Maybe they thought that the boldness of their, of their question would cause them to spill the beans. Well, it did. The woman said, oh, well, they were here. She, she didn't deny it. Oh, they were here, but they went over the brook and they went out that way. Now, a very similar thing had happened 300 years before in a general area, and that was when Rahab had the two spies of Israel, and she covered them up with grain, and, and said, oh, they were here, but, the, but they left already. Go after them and see if you can't get them. Now, I don't want to get into the whole issue of lying here. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried that once years ago <laughs> when it had to do with the, with the um, what, what do you, midwives in Egypt who, who were not killing the babies as they were ordered to do and, and claim, oh, well, the women of Israel are so strong, the babies are born before we even get there and they're healthy and so we, have, you know, da, 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 da. I mean, it was a flat-out lie. But what's a lie? Well, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> she lied to those two guys. <laughs> so did Rahab. The two men believed the woman because she said, yeah, they were here. She didn't deny it. Oh, I, I don't know who they are. Never saw them. You know. uh, that would get them to being, well, let's see. We're going to search your whole property here. Uh, no. Oh, yeah, they were here. Yeah, and and they, they, they took off over the creek there. They're out in the boonies. Go after them. Well, they went and they looked. And, of course, they didn't find them. And they eventually got tired of it and, and went home. Just like the case of Rahab. They searched and searched, didn't find them. And so they went home. Well, that's a big issue, you know, of, of what's a lie and, 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 you know, can you tell devil, the devil's agents a lie? You know, is, is it possible to even lie to the devil's agents? You know, Corey Ten Boom and the whole issue, oh, no, there are no Jews around here. I mean, what are we going to say, you know? That's, I think, something we all have to come to. You know, I mean, God says heaven will not be a place where liars are. So it becomes a matter then of defining what is, is a lie without becoming uh, 
situation ethical kind of people, you know, without, we have to have an absolute standard, but we have to understand uh, truth in the midst of that. Anyway, when the coast was clear, the two guys crawled out of the hole in the ground and they took off over. So they really did do what she said. It's just the timing was a little different than, than what she said. <laughs> they did cross over that brook and go out in the wilderness. It's just that they went a little later than, than she said. Anyway, they delivered Hushai's message. And David took Hushai's warning very seriously. And that very night, he moved the whole gang over the Jordan River. It was a night crossing. And verse 22 implies it took a long time to do it. It took several hours to get everybody across the river. Thousands of people that were with David, including women and children, get them all across the river. More distance and a barrier as great as the river, although the Jordan is not a really a very big river. And if you're really good at pole vaulting, you could probably pole vault the river in, in places. But it still was a barrier. And this gave David a far better chance to escape if he had that barrier and was on the other side during that very night. Actually, as it happened, of course, Absalom accepted Hushai's advice and rejected Ahithophel's advice, so there was no attack that night. So what does that tell us? Does that tell us that sometimes we, make, uh, we do something just in case and it turns out that the just in case wasn't necessary, so does that mean we shouldn't have done the just in case? You know, that, that's a big question, and I, I, I don't stand here to tell you the absolute answer, but I think it was wise that David did what he did. It was a little bit of an effort. They didn't get a good night's sleep, but that was probably all that was lost in the crossing of the Jordan. And I think it's a matter of, you know, I, I don't, I'm not an advocate of our hedging all of our bets, like the people did in Athens who said, we even have an altar to the unknown God, just in case we missed him. I, you know, I don't believe that we ought to be hedging our bets, but I think we ought to do, be doing wise things because we don't really know what God's plan is ahead of time in every situation. Just like David didn't know, but what this rebellion was God's way of fulfilling some of the promises that he had made. But what we find in the midst of this account in verse 23 is a very, uh, see, I guess I didn't read verse 23 yet, did I? Did I read verse 23 already? No. Oh, I stopped too soon. And it came about, well, let's read verse 21 through 23. And it came about after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly. For thus Ahithophel has counseled against you, and David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan, and by dawn not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order and strangled himself and thus died, and was buried in the grave of his father." So we have in verse 23 is a tragic account of Ahithophel. Ahithophel, it, it summarizes his destruction. He had dug his own grave, so to speak, because he had unwisely chosen to oppose the anointed king over Israel. David was the anointed king. As such, he was a type of Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one. So David was a Christ in a sense. And 
the tragic death of Ahithophel is a picture of all who reject Christ, all who reject the Anointed One. This is their ultimate fate. This is where they will end up, dead, hopeless. In Job chapter 31, Job writes these words, What is the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster for those who work iniquity? Very important, we always look at the positive side of things and, and know that the purpose of God is to bring good and, and to save people and all, but also we have to see the purpose of God is to punish the unjust. The purpose of God is to bring destruction on the kingdom of darkness. And Ahithophel has chosen to join the kingdom of darkness to resist God's anointed king, to dare to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, which David had clearly said he would never do, even though Saul was a total jerk. And when David had the opportunity, he said, I will not lay my hand on God's anointed king. If only Ahithophel had heard those words, or, you know, he certainly knew them, if he had only accepted them himself and realized it was not his place to try to replace David with Absalom. It was up to God to do. And so just as Judas, who was a traitor to, to Christ, the anointed one, went out and hung himself, so Ahithophel, who was traitor to the anointed king of Israel, went out and hung himself. Ahithophel committed suicide for two reasons. First of all, because his counsel had been rejected on a very, very major issue and he had been publicly humiliated. And secondly, I think through it all, he began to see that the cause of Absalom was lost and that when David was again king, he'd have been dead anyway. So he might as well do it himself, save himself further humiliation. So we have is... God's answer to prayer. Not only did he turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness, but he took out Ahithophel completely. And that only leaves one major senior counselor for Absalom, and that's Hushai, who is committed to the cause of David. Hushai, who will always give Absalom advice, which will turn against Absalom in the long run. Absalom has learned absolutely nothing from his father. Because David made it very clear that, uh, uh, concerning the providence of God. God does intervene in the affairs of man. God does hear and answer prayer. God does protect his anointed. God does work in this world. He is eminent, not just transcendent. And Absalom didn't get it. He, you know, he had no time for God. And as a result, he dug his own grave as well. He would pay the supreme price. The price that all will pay who reject the word of the living God. I wonder if he had ever read or heard any of the Psalms of his own father. Well, next week we'll uh, pick up with the 24th verse of the chapter. About Don? Yes, sir. You, could you comment on, on verse 14, where it says, The Lord had ordained before the good counsel of the citadel. Is that good? Yeah, it, it, it first of all is, is logical counsel. I think, I think in a way there's an ironic aspect to it. But it was, I mean, Ahithophel was giving, from the human point of view, good counsel. This would have been a wise thing for him to do. 
But it was the wrong thing because the whole, the whole Absalom rebellion was wrong and evil. But, but yeah, I think the word good is used in that sense, not in the sense that it was God's good, right? The Hebrew language has a range of ambiguity in it anyway. When it has to be translated, you compare half a dozen translations, you probably find a number of different... I didn't do that, so... No, I wasn't saying you should have, but I mean just... Yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> and when I have students that ought to be doing the teaching, then I'm in trouble. <laughs> anyway, but that's a, that's a good question because quite often in Scripture you'll have a statement like that, and in many cases it is stated in an ironic way. In other cases, it, it's it's in a from from the human standpoint, it was a good counsel. But it was evil counsel. How can something be good and evil all at the same time? Just look in the mirror. 